Hello and welcome to the Unsuccess Podcast, a podcast where we talk about vocation and ministry and life here in Portland in the 21st century. I'm David Libby. And I'm Josh Hawk. And today we're going to talk about me. Yes, you love talking about you, David. <laughs> I do. I do. I could talk about me forever. I Sometimes I feel like when I'm talking with other people, I need to just shut my yap because uh, it always... It always comes back to me and what I'm doing, uh, but but yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited to talk about myself. Yeah, I mean, it's a gift. It's not everybody's able to talk about themselves like you and I are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I, I love being self centered. I there's this there's this passage about. <laughs> Let me quote the, that. David loves being self centered. <laughs> there's this passage about the fruits of the spirit, and I'm pretty sure self centered. Is is in there? Somewhere. It's in the the, the Gnostic Gospels, right, I think. Right. I I have a translation of the Bible coming out in 2019, and <laughs> it'll be there. It's Fruit a, of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, and selfishness. Yeah, yeah. Lifeway's gonna love that book. <laughs> um, no, but in all seriousness, um, you know, David, you've got. Oh, you've got a story. I and mean, we all have stories. Um, but your story is um unique as is kind of everybody's, but there's definitely elements of that of your story, you know, as I've gotten to know you. Um that are just real, authentic. Uh, you're definitely not um uh, you're not the poster child, you know, necessarily for a lot of things. Hey. <laughs> um but you I I, I think that's one of the things that that makes you great and you makes you so much fun. Um, but let, let's let's talk about you. Where, who who is David Libby? Where do you where do you come from? Yeah, yeah. Well, David Libby, me. Uh, I'm from Klamath Falls, Oregon. It's a it's a small town. In fact, I thought it was a very small town, and then I went to college and I found out it's actually pretty large. There's uh, when I when I met my the person who lived across the hall in the dorms from me and he said we just got our first stoplight i thought okay okay but it's it's this small city in southern oregon and it's surrounded by mountains so it's really secluded it's sort of its own little culture there and and that's where i grew up and it's a it's it's still a wonderful town like i love it i'm very uh focused on Hunting, fishing, farming, a lot of blue collar folks down there and um, great place to grow up, great place to um, to grow up in with uh, I had a great family, great church um, for for some time. Um, I I feel weird talking about my first church because I was 11 when it split up. Like ninety percent of the people in my recollection left the church. Basically, uh, just a whole horde of us. There was uh, there was a lot of fighting behind the scenes, and you find in church work that when when people are fighting behind the scenes, it eventually spills out into the public knowledge. And there was a lot of anger at uh, my pastor. There was a lot of anger at the leadership of the church. And so a bunch of people left, including us. And 
you know, that, that stung, but we, we shook it off like Taylor Swift. And so we, we started going to another, another church for a while. I got really plugged into the youth group there and, um, and life was good. And I remember the, I, I always loved church. I always loved youth group. I'm, uh, I'm one of those kids that, uh, like, liked all the Christian music that was trying to be like the, um, like the awesome music of the time, but just wasn't as good. And I like, you know, wearing the, wearing the Christian shirts. I was, I was the, I was kind of, you say I'm not a poster boy, but in, in terms of youth group, I, I kind of was, I mean, that was my life. And so, um, part of being, a youth group kid is you always go to camp yeah. and, and summer camp is, is where everything sort of changed for me. I met uh, a lot of great people every year. Camp was awesome. And every year I left thinking, Oh man, I'm going to live my life for Jesus. And then I, I didn't cause that's how camp works. You get, you get really excited and then you don't change at all. But this one camp between my sophomore and junior year, I remember, I remember it really well, actually. There was only like 20 or 30 people there. I mean, it was for a camp, really small, like a really small group of people. But what was great about that is we all got really close knit. There were almost as many counselors as there were campers. So like all of us became sort of a family and... I don't, I don't remember any of the teaching there because um, for any youth leaders or camp counselors, you know this, the youth never remember the things that you teach them. <laughs> You've been a youth pastor, you know this. <laughs> That's right. It's, it's tough. And so I don't remember any of that. What I do remember uh, is two things. My friend Shire, who said, hey... I just, I started coming here. I was dragged here. Um, I'm going to die soon because I've overdone it with the hard drugs and I want to give my life to Jesus. And he did. And it was a powerful moment. It was great. It was, it was wonderful. And the other thing that I remember, and I don't know why these counselors saw this in me, um, but my, my parents showed up at the end of camp with the car I'm about to leave. I'm about five minutes from leaving. And this husband and wife counselor couple from Brookings stops me. I don't remember their names. If you're listening, find me. I'd like to get coffee with you. Uh, But this this husband and wife, they talked to me and said, you need to be a pastor. And we want to, we want to see your church when you're, when you're preaching. And, Again, I don't know who they are, so they probably never will. But um, you talk in Christian circles a lot about a Damascus Road experience where, like, uh, so there's this story in the book of Acts where Paul, uh, he's he's killing Christians, and suddenly there's this bright light and everything changes for him, and he becomes a Christian himself. 
And a Damascus Road experience then is an experience where everything changes for you. And I didn't have that. And most Christian leaders I know didn't have that. Yeah, it's It's, true. It's surprising, right? It happened at the right place. Like I think of summer camp, and I definitely had some experiences at summer camp. It's that Friday night, you know, or that Thursday night camp. Yeah. That campfire kind of thing, you know, and, and you just heard this awesome, inspiring speaker. But for you, it was five minutes before you left. Yeah. You know, and and um, it's this couple that you, who knows where they are, you know, or who they are. They just said those words, yeah. David, you should be a pastor. And, and, and somehow that's what, like, that's what stuck. Yeah, you would, you would think so. And, and ultimately, yes, but I blew it off. I was like, no way, man. First of all, first of all, I had no desire to be a pastor at all. I didn't feel like I had the gifts. I didn't feel like I was a good public speaker. What I found out is that kind of comes with time. Like very rarely is someone a great public speaker right away. Uh, I, I didn't think I had the abilities. I didn't, I didn't want to do it. And I wonder if part of that goes back to my first church and the people running out the pastor and all of us leaving. I mean, that that's always stuck with me. And I've seen what can happen in a church when there's a lot of fighting. And so I didn't really want any part of that. Um, you talk, this has nothing to do with anything, but you talk about the Friday night at camp. And one of the times that I had the biggest one of the biggest doubts I've ever had about my faith altogether. Those, those nights are powerful, right? You got, you got the music, you got the, the power sermon, and then, uh, everyone's crying and giving themselves to Jesus. And what I realized as a youth pastor is, um, that happens every time. And, uh, it sleep deprivation mixed with not getting fed enough all week and high decibel levels. And high decibel levels. I mean, the, you could easily explain the phenomenon with um, with emotional highs. And so, so that was one of the biggest um, doubting moments I ever had as a Christian. And, um, and, you know, ultimately, I do think God spoke to me in those times and I do think there was there was something going on there and I do think those moments are real for a lot of people but it um it was it was a pretty powerful moment in my life when I accepted some of these doubts and actually uh wrestled with them uh but that's all besides the point so so you say everything changed in that moment when they said you're going to be a pastor and it, it didn't because for about a year I was a junior and I hadn't been a great student freshman and sophomore year. And I knew if I had any hope of going to college at all, I needed to up my game. So I was just focusing on doing well enough to go to a college. And I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew I didn't want to do that. I, I didn't want to be a pastor. And people ask me, like, when did the change come? 
And I say, I don't really know. I remember when I first said out loud, I think this is what I'm supposed to do. And that was about a year later, the summer between my junior and senior year. But it happened slowly. It happened through conversations. It happened through quiet. It happened uh, through reflection. It didn't happen like it happened to Paul. And it didn't happen like it happens to some of those folks that you hear about that have the amazing story like, I I was a hard meth user and then I... Get, don't take that quote out of comment, uh, out of context, by the way. <laughs> but those stories where you hear, like, I was a hard user of meth and then I gave it up and became uh, sold out to God. I didn't have one of those, man. I was always uh, a follower of God. And it took a long time to be convinced that he was calling me to do ministry. And it, it, so it sounds like you never actually had one of those moments. No. But it was this this kind of slowly drawing, you know, to God. And, and so this kind of, the, we talked about this, you know, before, um, this long obedience, you know, in, in the yeah. same direction. And so it was just kind of this tugging almost, you know, it wasn't this aha moment. Right. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think those stories are not as sexy and those stories are not as cool. And I think those stories need to be heard a little bit more because yeah. those are a lot more common. Right. You're never going to be able to talk to 50,000 people with a story like mine. Well, I didn't want to be a pastor, and then at some point I did. But, but that's how God pulls people very, very often. It happens slowly, and it happens over a long period of time. Um, so... So yeah, so I decided that I was going to I was going to pursue this and it was frightening because a forty, fifty thousand dollar a year college to do a thing that I wasn't sure I was cut out for is um is pretty scary. So I went to college and over time I got hooked up with some uh, different forms of ministry. I was I was sort of testing the waters in college, seeing what what worked for me, seeing what I like to do. I started playing guitar, and so I thought, well, I'll, I'll try playing in some of the praise bands. And and I, anytime someone would give me the option to talk to people, I'd do it. Um, if if someone wanted me to pray, I was very uncomfortable with that in public, but I do it. I, I was sort of testing the waters and seeing what stuck, but it wasn't until my second year at college where I really got plugged into a church. And I think that's where it became, um, I started realizing how tough ministry is and how um, how much joy and also pain there can be in doing it. So um, I started at this small church in Junction City as a youth pastor. And almost right away, it was like, looking back, I clearly 
I learned from my youth pastor and he was one of those cool youth pastors who liked having fun. And so I try to do that too. And, um, for the most part, it, it didn't really seem to work. I remember distinctly having a lot of nights where I do youth group and then I'd go home and I'd be like, Oh, the kids didn't like the games and they didn't get anything out of the lesson and th- this is going nowhere and we we used to have 12 people here and now we have 3 it, it was it was devastating and it always felt devastating like like what I was doing wasn't enough or wasn't right and that's when the should I really be doing this started to settle in. And I think you know that feeling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, when you're when you're doing what you think you should be doing or what God has called you to and um and it's not working or or we compare ourselves. We we play that game of comparison, you know. Yeah. We, yep. We compare ourselves to other churches or other youth groups or um, your other organizations, you know, they're doing the same thing we're doing and they seem to have success at it, you know, or, you know, in your example, you know, maybe you were comparing yourself to the youth group that you were a part of, you know, growing up to, to the youth pastor that you had and you just weren't getting the same results. And it does, it, it challenges you or it calls you to question I think maybe especially because so many of us don't have that that burning bush experience, you know, that like God said, spoke to you, you know, audibly. And even right. so, I you know, I think Moses still had those. Moses feelings. did still yeah. have those feelings yeah. of like, I'm I'm gonna quit. I can't do this. I'm not cut out yeah, to peace be this. Out God, I'm gone. Um, and he actually <laughs> told God, you know, like I think you got the wrong guy. Um, you know, I, I am not the person for the job. So, so yeah, so you're having these doubts in Junction City. Right, yeah. And that never really left. Um, I mean, I, I don't ever think that I was doing a bad job. And I don't think even then that I thought I was doing a bad job, but it just, what I wanted to see God do in some of these youth, I didn't see. And I think that's part of the issue. I wanted to see it, but you don't always. And especially with high schoolers and and middle schoolers, they're pretty closed off sometimes. And there, you can pry a lot, but you don't always see what's going on beneath the surface. And I'm just now finding what some of the community building, relationship building, and uh, some of the growth with God that was happening in these students. I'm seeing that now, following them on Facebook and Twitter and whatnot, but I didn't really see it then. And I always wanted to be like an optimist there, but I remember driving home many nights and thinking, this is just not working. 
I'm I, like they picked the wrong guy. Um, but I stuck it out for about four years. And Lena, my wife, we met partway through. Well, we got married partway through me working there, and uh, she started working as the children's minister at the church. And then um, my pastor and I had a sit down at one point because I was starting to have those like severe doubts that I was talking about, about my own faith. And so we, we sort of had one of those knockdown drag out type of conversations. And it ended with him saying, you're welcome to stay, but I think I think seminary would be good for you. And I think, um, I think you are ready and equipped and God has equipped you to want to take the next step in your study. And so at the end of that meeting, I pulled back and Lena for another year while I was looking for, or a year and a half maybe, while I was looking for a school to go to that I could afford. <laughs> Seminaries out there, you're too expensive. I know I know there's no way around it, but ugh, like there it's impossible to go. So um we should start a cheap seminary, man. Yeah. <laughs> we, no, we should not. Uh but I I ended up going to seminary and during my time there just kept plugging away like the thing is I don't think I can stop I think just learning about God is not enough like I need to be doing something with my faith that's just kind of who I am and how I'm wired and how I'm built and so I was uh, preaching and trying to put together a college ministry that really didn't come together um i i could have put more work into that but it just it didn't it didn't come together in the way i wanted but the next big unsuccess moment i had and i would almost call this like a flat out failure on my part um it's at least it was it was not successful in the time being. Um, I started. I had this like urge, this realization I, that youth are kind of pushed off into their own little wing of the church, and adults are um, doing their own thing in the sanctuary, and there's this big split, and so. I thought, I want to be a youth pastor, and I want to uh, bridge that gap. I want to bring together the youth and the adults. And uh, so I started as a youth pastor at a church, and it was with middle schoolers. And I don't... There were some some differences of opinion between myself and the leadership, and I don't think I was uh, I don't think I was willing to uh, make 
concessions and try and uh, try and make things work so much at the church. And um, like after um, things things got pretty rough. I think the um, the biggest um, the biggest lesson I think I learned at that place. We were playing this this game. We uh, during Sunday school. We finished our Sunday school lesson, and we were playing this game, and it was loud. It got pretty rowdy, um, but it wasn't like I didn't feel like it was overkill at the time. But it got pretty rowdy, and um, one of the one of the adults from downstairs came up and screamed at all the kids and yelled, "You!" you all need to be quiet. We can't even hear ourselves think and slam the door. And one of our youth who was brand new that day just kind of looked sad and said, I'm never coming back. And like I was at that point filled with such a righteous anger and I, I didn't know how to maturely deal with it. I was like 28 or 29, but even still, it, I was so angry. Um, and I, I passive-aggressively talked online about how, you know, sometimes youth get loud, and that happens. And uh, I didn't say you whiners need to get used to it, but I, I basically said that. <laughs> Now, for those listening, don't do that. <laughs> that was not that was not a good way to deal with my anger. But that moment was the tipping point where there was like little trust between myself and the other leadership. And it's understandable. Um, I don't I don't begrudge them. I think that was a pretty crummy move on my part. I I think I learned that day that you can be mad for all the right reasons, but you you have to deal with it rightly. And that's that's a lesson that I've been consider uh, continuing to learn throughout my life. You know, for the six, seven years after that, I, you know, as I listen to that story, I think of Jesus, and there's uh, there are a few examples, you know, in the Gospels that we read of that. The first one that comes to mind is. You know, when the kids are coming up and and are loud, I'm sure. Right. right. And you know, they're probably they were probably younger kids, but you know, for the sake of the context, you know, the teenagers are I think the exact same thing. And Jesus told the disciples essentially 
probably like the same thing. What what was going on in Jesus' head is the same thing that's going on in, in your mind. You know, it's like it's he's feeling the exact same thing, you know, as you were right. that kind of righteous that righteous anger, indignation. Um and 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 so he tells the disciples, you know, basically to shut it and let the kids come. And he stopped what he was doing at that po- at that moment, you know, and and welcomed them. Um, and then, of course, we have the the example where he went into the temple and they um, the money changers had just kind of made a mess of things. And yeah. um, and he he got more. Uh, more visibly angry in in that moment, um, but I, I'm I'm sure I can't help but imagine just the what I know of Jesus, the fact that he was um, the lover of the outcast, that he showed compassion to those nobody else showed compassion for, um, that that kind of a thing happened a lot with him, um, and and how did he? how did he respond to that? You know, like, um, what are those times when, you know, Jesus, because I, I can't, I also can't help but believe that, um, that Jesus was very respectful with those who he was angry with as well. You know, and and there's a way to be angry, um, with somebody and still be able to highly respect them. And so I, I think he he had this I think beautiful way of or I have to believe at least that uh, of embracing the rowdiness, the uncomfortableness, the the messiness, um the failures of society if you would. Um he had a way of embracing that but still still being able to love the institution <laughs> the the elite i mean he could wine and dine with the best of them you know and um i think there's i i think there's an art there you know and yeah. and we learn we we learn from that you know as as you have well i think with that scenario specifically part of my failure was my heart was to be a pastor to these youth. Yeah. And I didn't consider the the lady, the folks who were being disturbed. Like, I, I... Sometimes you have to fall on one side or the other, but you are a pastor to everybody. And, right. And that was lost. I remember recently uh, we were having some difficulty at, at the church I am a, a pastor at now, and... It was this this awkward tension between how do we care for the homeless and not tick off the neighbors, and that's that's something that happens at every church here in North Portland. We have a lot of homeless, uh, just a giant homeless population here, and uh, and we have a lot of neighbors, and rightfully angry neighbors like when when needles are thrown in their backyard and they have kids i like i would be upset too i get it but i was talking with my spiritual director and she said you're right to be wanting to help the homeless but you also need to remember that you're a pastor 
and you need to be a pastor to your whole community, and that includes those around you. And it's a it's a, an awkward, uncomfortable, strange line to walk. And I know some of my fellow ministers around here would disagree with me hard. They would say, no, no, just focus on the homeless or whatever. But um, at the end of the day, there's there's a balance, there's a tension there. And um, I, I, I crossed it. I, cr- I, I went completely on one side with my youth ministry and, um, and at various times I've gone one way or another on this, uh, homeless problem as well. It's, it's difficult, but we need to be mindful of people. Am I am I wrong? No, I mean, <laughs> it's it's the, tough. The, it's a the hard problem. Like yeah. the problem is that's not popular, um, right? You know, I was just t- I had a conversation yesterday. You know, about kind of a big, well-known pastor who <laughs> everything everything that they said or kind of the the issues that they came down on it was very black and white. Um, and that's what's attractive. That's what people want. Like they, you, people expect you to get fired up, you know, on one side or the other. Um, right. And we live in such a dualistic society. I, I think we're moving away from that kind of that, that dualism um, and embracing more of the spectrum, embracing more gray area. Um, but I, uh, it, it's hard and it's frustrating. You, you, you can't, you cannot please both sides. Um, but I think if we step back, um, and this is where patience comes in. This is where faithfulness, um, where longevity can come into play. Um, because as you establish trust, um, we're able to, to interact with, with both sides. I, I used this example the other day and I was, working with a couple who are getting married this summer. Um, we were talking about compromise. I, I am not a fan of compromise. Um, I don't like compromise because compromise in my mind is a lose lose situation. Um, you know, everybody's giving up something. And, um, and so just recently my wife and I painted our living room and compromise in my mind would be, I wanted the wall a certain color and my wife wanted the wall another color well compromise is that we mix the two colors together and you know we come up with a color that neither of us really like is that what you did that is not what we (laughs) did um but what the other way to do that if we step back if we look at what we really want you know like what i don't really want my wall to be green and my wife doesn't really want our wall to be yellow. What we really want is a nice looking living room. Like that is the goal. Um, and we both can agree on that. And so let's, instead of putting our foot down and saying, no, it has to be green or it has to be yellow. Like let's step back from that and say, we want a nice looking living room how can we approach this in a different way rather than being pitted against each other? 
but how can we approach this in, in this way of working together and almost come at it sideways? Um, and so we can do that in any, any example, you know, with, with your example, with that youth group, you know, how can you then, you take that, that issue and you approach the leadership and you say, Hey, what you want is a thriving youth group. And what we want is a place for the kids, you know, to be able to be rowdy. Um, we, we really want the same thing. We want people to be loved. Um, what happened didn't, it didn't show that way. And it's not us against you, but let's come up with some workable solution. And I think that's the conversations that we have to have with the homeless as well. You know, like um, us and the neighbors and the homeless, like we, we all want safe places for all of us to live. We all want to live in a safe world. Um, And, and we can all agree on that. And so let's approach these issues, these topics, maybe sideways rather than pitting them against it and say, it's like, no, it's either this or it's either that. Like, oh, let, let's explore more opportunities. It's going to be slower. Um, it's going to take more time. But I think at the end of the day, we we all really, oh, we're all better for it, you know, and we have richer relationships as a result of that. Yeah. So. Yeah. All right. So back to your story. Um so that became kind of really... That was a big was, moment. Yeah. That was a big moment. And I, as far as things I've learned, that's probably in the top three. You learn best from screwing up. I, yeah. I, don't, I don't think that's universal, but I think it's mostly universal. I think you, you learn best when you've screwed up and... And I, and I did, and and I've realized since that if I'm going to be a pastor, I need to be a pastor. Hmm. Not just to, like, one subset of people. They might be, like, the people that I'm really shepherding, but um, if if someone else has a need, I can be for, there for them as well. Even if it's annoying to me, even if I don't want to do it, and a lot of times I don't, I'll be real. You can, <laughs> you who are at my church can think about if that's you or not. It's it's not, <laughs> it's not you. Uh, but like I remember, one day there was a guy who'd come to our church a couple of times, and I I had only been at the church for maybe a month at this point. And I recognized him, and he asked if his mom was there, and I didn't know who his mom was. I didn't even remember who he was. There's 100 people, and it's only been a month. I I couldn't remember everyone's name. And so I said, sorry, I, I don't know. And he walked off, and I remember distinctly going back inside and not hearing a voice, but, but feeling this urgent message, like you're a pastor, go talk to him. And I had just blown him off. It was at the end of church and I was trying to shake a bunch of hands and say hi to people. But this guy was really hurting and the people in the foyer were fine. You know, they were, they were, they were getting along just fine. Things were okay. And if they wanted to talk to me, they could wait around. 
And that's, had it been before that one moment with the youth group, I don't know if I would have chased him down, but I'd been learning over the years, you're a pastor, like be aware when someone needs you. Mm. And so I, as far as learning goes that, like I said, is in at least the top three things I've learned in life. That's really good. I, you know, we get caught up and, you know, as a pastor, we, we're also kind of the, the CEO of this small business, you know, the, the church really functions as this, as a business. Um, and so we get caught up in having to make sure our numbers are right. Make sure, you know, we're, we're collecting enough people, you know, to, to be able to pay the bills um and and we forget that our our main calling you know is not to run an organization it's actually like makes me sick when i actually think about it it's it's people it's not just running the books it's not just running yeah, the so things. Um, it's people so pastoring a small church we there's the reality, there's the administration, you know, of running it like a business, but but stepping back and realizing that our first call is to people. Um and 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 having to wow just that vocational element, I guess, of of being a pastor. I had this a little bit of a kind of an aha moment a while back, um, and thought of myself as a pastor, more as a public servant. And, um, and that's kind of helped me in, in a little, in a little bit, you know, and sure as a pastor, we have, we have an obligation to the congregation, you know, who, um, who we shepherd. Um, but we have a calling, a much greater calling to our, our society. You know, we're to be leaders, um, you know, when our neighbors come into kind of a crisis moment, you know, or members in our community, if, if they need kind of a spiritual director, um, it doesn't matter if they go to our church or if they ever come to our church, you know, we're called to, you know, to, to be an ambassador for God, you know, to them, to be able to speak love and worth and value and um, to be there when, Seemingly nobody else um, kind of in, in their network or in their family or friends, you know, has been there for them. Um, so it's a high calling. And yeah. it's it's good for us to be reminded of that, you know, over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's easy to forget. We get we get bogged down and I'm not talking about like paid church pastors. I mean, anyone who's following their vocation in life, it's easy to get bogged down in like the to-do list. It's super easy to get bogged down in the, the minutia of what you have to do. And at the end of the day, uh, there are people with needs and there are people with hurts and we may be equipped to be the person to meet that need. And, um, just sensitivity to that, awareness of that is 
I think what God calls us to. Yeah. It's not gonna it's not gonna make you popular necessarily. I remember reading The Pastor, which is Eugene Peterson's memoir, and yeah. he he said at one point, like, don't follow my lead because I do this very differently than other people, but I just always had a sense that I'm a pastor and not a uh, not a business guy, and so my church never really grew too big. And uh, I I find that's pretty accurate. And I I go if we're being real, I go back and forth on whether that's good or bad. <laughs> but that's if if I were to pick one or the other, I think being there for people will always outdo trying to go grow a big sexy church. The problem what would grow a sexy church is if you called it sexy church. Right, right. <laughs> I think one of one of the problems and I this go this idea of church growth um and probably you know a, a lot to do with business growth or really any any time we're looking to to grow something um we're we're selling a product and and there's this exchange. Right. Um like I want to please the people in my congregation because ultimately, you know, the, there's the reality that, you know, my paycheck comes, you know, you know, from um, from their their support of the ministry, and and if they're happy, then I'm happier. Everybody's happier. Um, but there's this give and take, whereas there's other people that we are called to love, and we will never see anything from that. We will never get anything back. Right. Um, and definitely there are people in our congregations, you know, that are that way as well. Right. Sure. Right. If you're, um, if, you're, if you're looking for a give and take, it feels like a very one-sided relationship. Yeah. Where you pour in and pour in and pour in and... I. You know, it just takes a cursory reading the Gospels to realize that's probably what Jesus wants, but it's still, it it can be exhausting. It is so exhausting, but but I, I'm I'm drawn to that because I think there's this ideal, especially as pastors, we get a model that like I think there's this high calling that says you you we need to be in such a place spiritually, in such a place with our relationship with God, where God is just filling us up and then we can in return kind of give of ourselves in, um, you know, in, in such a way that we're not, we're not requiring people to give back, you know, for us to, um, to be okay for us to continue to function. Um, and that's hard, but, but the, the, I, and I've seen I've seen people who do it really really well. My dad is one who comes to mind, you know, and um, you know, and others who we've talked to and who we'll have on the on the show, who are just able to give and give and give and give and give and give. Linda Joe was one. I'm like, right, dude, you just right. give and give from such this depth. Yeah, and but but then we've been to I don't know if this is like 
giving away, and I don't think this is uh, too personal, but we've seen her at gatherings where she is just broken, man. Yeah. Because she just pours herself out so much that she's, uh, like, she has very little left in those moments. Yeah. Um, and, and there are those moments where we realize that we have to go away and we've got to <laughs> fill ourselves, you know, like, and yeah. we have to be intentional. And Jesus, of course, knew that too. You know, Jesus spent lots of time, you know, alone with his father. Um, and he, he needed that so that, you know, he can give and give. And, um, I guess it's being intentional with that, you know, knowing kind of our, our own tank, kind of our, our self care, um, yeah, I don't like the term self care a lot, um, because it oh, is, you're super wrong. It's great <laughs> because it's focused on you know ourself, and I I do think you know especially as pastors that self care is not for us, but self care is so that we can then in turn right. you know give of ourselves. Um, so in a, a roundabout way, it it really is for the sake of others. Um, but, right. Yeah. Well, well, David, thanks for sharing some of your this story. Was a, this was a good conversation. I'm never quite sure uh, if I'm, when I'm going to talk about me, where things are going to go. Because, I, I mean, you, you know just from now, but just in general, I like to take rabbit trails. Yeah. <laughs> and so this could have gone anywhere, but I think this was a, a good, healthy, helpful conversation. Yeah, that's good. And, of course, we've only scratched the surface. There's right. so much more to David Libby than right. what we've talked about. Right. I'm going to start my own separate podcast <laughs> called uh, the Unsu- David Libby Unsuccess, Show. the David Libby Chronicles. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, make it a it, – it has to be a video cast, though. A uh, video cast? Okay. Okay. Yeah. I could – I could. Uh, I mean, <sighs> vampires and zombies are kind of on their way out, like – what do I need to add to make it popular? What's big right now? Shaving your head. <laughs> <laughs> I've done that twice. I did it. Well, I did it fully once, and my wife said never again. I and think the trick is you have to grow a full-out beard. Yeah. You got to have the whole beard and, and shave your head. Yeah, I can't do that. I get a goatee, and actually, my my saga my story of facial hair is um like in college i could grow a mustache and one sideburn and that was it and like a lot of neck hair and i can still grow a lot of neck hair now i can grow a goatee one sideburn a lot more than the other but not the full beard i can't it does not happen so i can grow a five o'clock shadow it takes about seven days it looks pretty good right now yeah it's it's seven days yeah (laughs) Yep. So that's the look I go for. Then. I'll be sure not to shave my head without telling my wife, though, right? You're right. Don't, <laughs> don't do that. Word that's, for the wise. Yeah. Talk to your wife really about everything. Yeah. Yeah. Especially about physical change because she has to see you every day, you know? Yeah. Like, it's important. Well, uh, well, it's been good uh, talking with you. We're, we look forward to... Uh, Talking with you next week, we're going to have my friend Jay on, who's fantastic, and he's going to be a great guest. So we hope you look forward to that. But um, you can find us on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, 
Uh, I used to be on Snapchat, but I found it stupid and I deleted it. So <laughs> don't try and talk to me there. Uh, but for the Unsuccess Podcast, I'm David Libby. And I'm Josh Hawk. It was great uh, talking to you, and we will see you next time. Bye.